They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And dear Lord, thank you so much for this gathering today um, and remembering this weekend those who have served. Um, we pray this morning for John as he comes to share your good word, that you fill him with peace and with confidence, um, remembering who you are and the grace that you've given him and to all people. And I pray that he would um, really serve you well this morning um, and just reach reach someone specifically who's needing to hear what he has to say this morning. Um, I pray that his words would only be of you um, and that you would just give him peace and strength. Lord's name, amen. You see, anybody, no one else wanted to pray for me? Come on, people. I'm just kidding. Thank you, Jamie. Well, uh, this passage that we've just read is, is iconic. Uh, when you think about uh, like starting the early church, it's beautiful, it's idealistic, and there's a temptation in starting a new church like we've done. Some of you may not know we're 18 weeks into being a church, but there's a temptation in, in starting a new church or attending a new church and thinking, like, we're going to be the ones who get it right, who do it just like they did in the early church. You think, uh, you know, for, for lack of trying, everyone else may have screwed it up, but we're going to be the ones... Uh, who nail it. And um, so many of us have, have taken a swing at this and have found that it's a little bit more difficult than that. And, and there are three ways that, that the church often fails. There are many more than three. I'll limit it to three ways that the church often fails when it comes to, to living into this idealistic kind of vision. And the first is, is we overestimate our own abilities. So, you know, we think we're going to be the ones who, who do church well, and we think it's been a matter of the will. If we just will it to be true, we will live into this kind of pure, uh, undefiled community kind of experience of Christianity. If we just will it to be true. Well, for all of us who have, like, neglected working out after the first week of the new year, we know that our will is often not enough to get things done. Another way that we blow it as the church in trying to live into some kind of ideal calling is that we mischaracterize our own identities. We think, I'm a good person, my friends are good people, and when we get together, everything's going to be just hunky-dory, there's not going to be any conflict. And for those of us in this room who have a relationship with another human being, uh, we know that, that there's more to it than that. Uh, Henry Cloud said, we're attracted to people's outsides, but over time what we experience is their insides. And what we find is that our insides, we're conflicted and broken people um, who need healing. And so when you get a bunch of people together in a room, it, it's not enough to say, like, we're just going to live into this ideal calling together because we discover uh, that we're broken and we discover that we don't have the willpower that we had hoped. And so while we have perhaps lofty ideals of what a relationship system could be like or what a church could be like, we often fail to live up to that. 
And then the third reason I think a lot of uh, churches uh, fail in, in terms of like reaching that ideal vision of what it means to be the church is, you know, we look at a passage like we just read together in Acts chapter 2, and we forget what happened before that passage, and we forget what happened after that. And so this morning, we're going to look at the before and the after. The before, the, this passage comes on the heels of, of some, some seismic shifts in like spiritual realities. Uh, Jesus came, the fulfillment of millennia of prophecy in anticipation of all the hopes of Israel. He came, he, he lived his ministry, he died, Christians believe, uh, to rescue us uh, for, for the forgiveness of our sins. He was resurrected so that we could experience a new life, a life of hope. And then he was ascending to the right hand of his Father. And ascension, as I've said, is not about an elevator ride up to heaven because he, like, he needed help getting up there. Ascension is about authority, that Jesus was going to the place of highest authority in heaven and earth at the right hand of his Father, and there at the place of utmost authority, he was praying for us and interceding for us. But before Jesus ascended, this is at the end of the Gospels, this is the beginning of Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus did a couple of cool things. He'd spent some time with about 500 disciples. And as he ascended, he blessed them, which is cool. We end every service doing a benediction where we speak these good words, these true words over each other, that God is blessing you, filling you with hope. Jesus blessed the disciples as he ascended. He gave them a mission. It's called the Great Commission. It's in, it's in the end of uh, Matthew's gospel. Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them to obey all of the stuff that I've commanded you, and I promise I'm always with you. Uh, and then he gave one final instruction, and this is in Acts 1.8. He said, you're going to want to skip town and go up north where you're from to Galilee, but hang around in Jerusalem. He said, in, in a week's time, uh, you'll receive power because the Holy Spirit's going to come on you so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And so the disciples obey Jesus' command. They stay. They wait. They're all in together. They rent this upper room, and there are about 120 of them. There were at that time about as many Christians in the world as are in this room right now. 120 of them were together. They were praying. Uh, the, the 11 disciples were there. Judas had taken himself out of the picture. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. A bunch of women were there who had followed Jesus for years in his ministry, 120 of them. And there they waited and they prayed. And on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish holiday, a Jewish festival, when they celebrated the, the harvest, and they remembered how God, Yahweh, had given the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, something really unusual happened. All of a sudden, there was this sound like a rushing wind, and, uh, and it was like in, in the Bible, the wind and the Holy Spirit are always tied. There's a sense that like God's stirring up something fresh, and a little tongue of fire appears over each person. It wasn't over just the select few, but like the fire, the presence of God was resting on every person. And then weirdest of all, they all started speaking in other languages, and there was such a commotion that people out in the streets were like, are they drunk in there? And so Peter comes out to give an explanation. He said, look, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That's actually in the Bible. And in honor of this, like, this confusion, last week we, did, we served wine for communion for the first time. And it went over really, really well, especially with the teenagers. They're like, we like communion a lot. 
No, we did not do that. But uh, sometime, okay? So the disciples are all together. They think they're drunk, and, and Peter gets up to preach, and he says, look, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning for that. Now, what you're seeing is the fulfillment of something God promised long, long ago through a prophet named Joel. Through Joel, God said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams on servant and free, on young and old, on man and woman. I'm going to pour out my spirit. Peter said, that's precisely what's happening here. And it's happening because of all that stuff that's just happened with Jesus, how Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy, how he died for our sins. He died to fill that hole within us that we couldn't fill on our own. And he was raised to life so that we can experience a new life. We can experience new hope. And now he's ascended to the highest place in authority and is seated as the world's true king. And when Peter gave this message, the people there were cut to the heart. Thousands had gathered around to hear him. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? Peter said, repent to me, baptized all of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit too. And there are millions of Jews from all over the known world there at the time, people who spoke other languages that because of tongues, they'd heard the gospel, they came to believe. And the scripture says 3,000 were added to their number daily. Or 3,000 were added to their number that day, and then many of them returned home. And the gospel in a heartbeat uh, began to take root in the known world. The Great Commission had begun to be fulfilled. 3,000 were added to their number that day, which they went from 120 to 3,120, which is 2,500% growth. And someone with a calculator has got to tell me if I'm right, because I went to divinity school, okay? I literally Googled that, by the way. This kind of community that we see in Acts chapter 2 happened because of the work of the Spirit. This descent of the Spirit, this great move that we just, uh, we just read immediately preceded the behavior of the church that we saw in this text that we all read together. And it tells us something important about it, that that kind of community, the kind of community that perhaps you've been church hopping to find, or we've all been looking for and had that discomfort in our hearts, is a Spirit-generated kind of thing. Authentic and transformative Christian community is a work of the Spirit. It's Spirit-generated. It's not something we can manufacture on our own or will to be true. Um, it, it's something that we've got, we've got to be not only open to the Spirit to experience this, but together to be hungry for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is why we did what we did last week if you were here, or maybe you listened online. We just carved out some space to express Lord, we're open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's so critical. And what do we see happen after this great event? You know, the the Holy Spirit comes, the church begins uh, behaving in particular ways. What did they do? This is in the text if you want to look. In verses 42 through 47, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, um, which is a learning and a studying component. So they were gaining new information. Paul, in one of his letters, who's an, an, an author of, one of the New Test, some of the New Testament books, said, like newborn babies, we should crave pure spiritual milk. These, these many who were added to the number, became part of the disciples, sat at the feet of the apostles who had sat at the feet of Jesus, and they soaked up everything they had to say, just recalling the words of Jesus. There was, there was teaching and learning. There was fellowship and the breaking of bread. Uh, they were developing rich friendships. They spent a ton of time together. They ate a lot of meals together. 
they had a lot of, they developed a lot of history together, just being together and, and, and telling the story of, of what God was doing. They developed good friendships. Uh, they, they prayed for each other. They held, they held everything in common so that if one person had a need, Steve over here is selling something, some piece of property that he owns, giving it to the pool, the common pool, and they're meeting each other's needs. They're, they're supporting each other spiritually and materially. They met in their homes. They worshiped. And it says God added to their number daily those who are being saved, which was cool. They didn't do a Billy Graham crusade. They didn't go out handing out tracts. They weren't knocking on doors. They were doing the normal stuff that the church does, worshiping, praying, giving, caring for each other. And daily, people were so compelled by that kind of community life that they said, I want into that. And daily, people were being saved. And this is what we hope for within Cornerstone. That's why we've been talking, we've been saying all year, it doesn't matter how great our programs are, how great the preaching is, what we really need, the secret to being fruitful is to be being tied into Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear fruit. Your life is going to flourish. If your life is not flourishing, you could ask yourself, where am I in relationship with Jesus? And here, if you have a sense of like life being powerless, we consider the words of Jesus again. Do you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? And is the power of the Holy Spirit present in our community? We pray for that. We pray for that to happen. We want it to happen organically. There are also some things that we'll do and we're doing to encourage that and foster that. So some of you participated in the story course that we did. Uh, This fall, we'll, we'll roll out a group structure called Apprentice Groups, which is about developing rich friendships uh, with each other and with God, learning to live a gospel-shaped kind of life, a, a flourishing life. We'll do things like that, but our prayer is more than anything that, that this will be the fruit of the work of the Spirit, not something that we've manufactured on our own. So if you've, if you've peeked ahead or you've read the book of Acts before, you know that after this passage that we've just read, that this behavior continued until about 50 years ago when the church screwed things up and there was no conflict between then and about 50 years ago. Am I right? No, it was, uh, we turn the page and almost immediately we see conflict. I mean, it was so great there for like 14 minutes. And then you turn the page and you tell the story and you see immediately conflict. Tons of it. Uh, some of you have never heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and in a couple of weeks when we tell that story, you're going to wonder, like, is it physically safe to go to church? Uh, I was just going to tell you, that's a day to bring your offering, okay? Uh, Ananias and Sapphira got in big trouble for not doing that, so bring your... I'm just kidding. Uh, no, but they did get in trouble. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, a bizarre story of, of, of how the Spirit was at work. You've got Peter uh, going... Uh, butting heads with Paul. you got Paul butting heads with Mark. you got Jew and Gentile fighting each other, rich and poor, slave and free. You've got a, a group of people that's just rife with conflict and, and continual crisis. In fact, most of the New Testament, the last third of our Bible, is a bunch of letters that have been written by Peter or Paul or John to churches in crisis. We've got incest, got idolatry, there's celebrity culture, there's racism, there's classism, there's narcissism, there's sexuality gone wild. And it's easy to idealize the church when we read a passage like we just read where they're so united and pure in heart, but then you turn the page and read the rest of the story and find, oh, they're a lot more like me than I thought. 
You find the early church was just as complicated and broken as the contemporary church. But this is actually good news if we can take it. This is actually really good news if we can hear it. Discovering the church was never perfect and letting go of this this, uh, grand idealism is actually good news. Perhaps you're familiar with a, a, a pastor, a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's, who was a pastor in, not, under Nazi Germany, and has written some beautiful, beautiful works. Uh, Cost of Discipleship is one of those, but one of his, his seminal texts is called Life Together, where Bonhoeffer writes about the Christian community and how the church was to operate. And Bonhoeffer picks up on these dynamics that I'm talking about here, about the gift of of some realism when thinking about the church, the gift of losing our idealism. And so hang with me. I'm going to read a a bit from Bonhoeffer here. He says, By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world where we're imagining what the church should be through rose-colored lenses. God does not abandon us to these rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship, he's talking about the church, only that fellowship, that church, which faces such disillusionment, oh, I can't believe these people are just like the people in my last church. Only that fellowship which which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight and begins to grasp in faith the promise that's given to it. Okay, this is going to get really good. Hang with me. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive a crisis of realizing we're all jacked up, but which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it'll collapse. Every human wish or dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community, and it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. And then here's the the best part. He said, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. If you're so drunk with, like, your imagination about what the church should be that it causes you to neglect the human beings who are here, the actual Christian community that's before us, you'll destroy any chance you've got of actually experiencing it, no matter your best intentions, how earnest or sacrificial. That vision of idealistic community can often be the thing that kills community. So the only chance we have of real Christian community comes when we surrender that idealistic vision, which is ultimately idolatry. And it comes when we resolve together that we're going to stay committed to Christ and to each other in covenant community, to the people that God has sent. And then Bonhoeffer goes on. This is is a shorter one. He said, it may be that Christians, in spite of corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service may still be left to their loneliness. He's saying, we're all in the room. It's so great. It may give us the illusion of community, but we're still feeling lonely. Why is that? He said, the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, 
They don't have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everybody must conceal their sin from each other and from ourselves. We dare not to be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. And the fact is that we are sinners. There's no shot at real community when we come in and pretend that we are already mature and whole in Christ. There's no shot at real community when we insist on hiding behind a facade and pretending that we too are not in need of God's grace, that we don't have it all figured out, that we struggle with sin and vices just like everyone else. And it's that pretense which crushes the possibility of meaningful and authentic friendship and Christian community. It's that pretense. And so it's worth saying, I have doubts, I have sins, I have struggles, I jack up relationships habitually. In fact, there was someone at the last service where, like, we've been talking through some stuff, and it was like, I'm telling the truth, aren't I? And they were like, yeah, I said, too soon, too soon, okay. Um, but our ambition is to be well in Christ together, not to seem like we're well in Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, said this, he said, so you want to be well? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? Confess your sins to each other and then pray for each other. So we need to know that, that authentic and transformative Christian community is spirit-generated, but we also need to know that authentic and transformative Christian community is honest about sin and our need for grace. It's being honest about where we actually are as human beings, how we're actually doing as disciples of Jesus. When I was a kid, there was a show on Nickelodeon called The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Has anyone heard of that? The Adventures of Pete and Pete? Okay. It was about uh, these two brothers whose parents hated them because they named them both Pete and Pete. I actually don't remember if the parents hated them. I just think that's a really sad premise. Uh, they're both named Pete. Pete, no one, like four people know I'm joking like 80% of the time. You guys all. So Pete and Pete, it's a show about these two brothers living in a neighborhood, the summer break, got a lot of time on their hands, and there's this local neighborhood superhero. His name is Mr. Perfect. And Mr. Perfect can do everything perfectly. And so Pete and Pete decided to kind of run him through the ringer and try a bunch of different things. And he could, in fact, do everything perfectly. And so they were feeling a bit discouraged about their uh, quests to make him screw up. And they decided, ah, we've got an idea. So they invite uh, Mr. Perfect to the family barbecue. And mom and dad have grilled out and they got ribs that are just slathered in barbecue sauce. And they want to see how well Mr. Perfect does eating these sloppy ribs. And so he fills up his plate from the buffet. He sits down, he gets out a fork and a knife, and he bite by bite cleans the meat off of these bones and eats all of it without getting a drip of barbecue sauce on his napkin or on his face or on the table. And he's feeling pretty good about himself because he just did it perfectly because he's Mr. Perfect. And you can see that Pete and Pete have, are pleased with themselves because they go to Mr. Perfect and said, you lost. We knew you weren't perfect. He said, what do you mean? They said, that's not how you eat barbecue. <laughs> when you eat barbecue, you're supposed to need a wet nap afterward. 
when you eat barbecue, you're supposed to get a little bit on your face, and you're, you need to go through four or five or six or seven paper napkins. That's not how you eat barbecue. It's far too clean. That's also not how you do church. If we're not regularly experiencing some kind of conflict, if our, if our sin and our self-destructive behaviors are not coming to the forefront, we're not living nearly in close enough proximity to each other. And, we're, and that's not how you do church, and it's not how you eat barbecue. That's not the kind of Christianity was not supposed to be clean and neat and polite all the time. There's, there's a mess to redemption. We, as, as God's people, have created, as creation, have made a huge mess of the world that God made, and at great cost, Jesus has been working to clean things up and to make us well, but healing is a painful thing, and redemption is a messy, messy process. I thought about where do we go from here, and I've, I've, I've written out eight opportunities, eight invitations to be a part of Christian community. And even as I'm talking, I thought of a ninth. I didn't need to tell you that because it's not going to be on the slides. I could have bluffed, but I didn't want to. Nine invitations for what it, what it looks like to be in Christian community. Um, the first thing is this. Uh, make every effort not to miss weekly worship gatherings. Now, this is not about church attendance. This is not about making me feel good. We're all busy, all of us. Uh, if we were to try to find a time during the week where all of us could get together in a room and sing and pray for each other and open the Scriptures, we would have an impossible time doing that because our schedules are bonkers all over the place. Sunday mornings, we have a time set aside where we say we want to be in this kind of community. And the things that we'd hope for that we see in Acts 2, we get a glimpse of on Sunday mornings. And I encourage you, it's not because there's something magical about Sunday mornings, but it's a way to say, I want to be in Christian community. As far as it depends on you, make every effort to show up when the church shows up, when we're all together. Make every effort to, to do that. That's one. Two, make every effort to enter into the lives of others and especially to share your story. So uh, to, to, to be a real friend, especially, you know, we're not going to school together. We don't have English and science together. We show up in a building a couple hours a week. And this is our, our chance to see each other until we take a courageous step to enter into each other's lives Monday through Saturday. We need to take some courageous steps to enter into each other's lives and to tell our stories. And here's a great way to start a great conversation. Ask someone, what is your problem? <laughs> it's like, quit messing around. What is your deal? No, but we need to tell our stories. Here's who I am. Here's what makes me tick. And, and then listen when the other person shares. Make every effort to enter into the lives of other people. Three, as soon as you reasonably can and slightly sooner than you're comfortable, be honest about your struggles and confess your sins to each other. As soon as you reasonably can and before you feel completely comfortable, be honest about where you need support. Uh, James, I mean, this is, this is in the Bible. This is James, the brother of Jesus. I trust he's got it on good authority. If you want to be well, name your demons. If you want to be well, name your vices and your desire to be well to a brother or sister in Christ and ask them to pray for you. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, said, that, man, that's a secret. So as soon as you reasonably can and slightly sooner than you're comfortable, be honest and confess your sins. Four, share meals Read the Bible and pray with other people as often as you possibly can. Over coffee at Starbucks, over breakfast or lunch at some restaurant, in your home, 
over the phone or you're praying for somebody, not just saying, I will pray for you. Share meals, read the Bible, and pray for each other as often as you possibly can. Five, assume that conflict at any level, great or small, uh, and working through that conflict is God's gift to you to experience real community. So the closer you get to the people in this room, the more likely conflict is going to happen. And when that conflict happens, and it's almost always over something stupid, assume that that little conflict or that big conflict is an opportunity, a gift from God to you to grow in intimacy with your brother or your sister in Christ. Embrace that conflict as, a, as a, something to work through so that you can be closer to God and to each other. Six, uh, take opportunities. So the, the church, we're going to, like the staff, we're going to offer programs, okay? We'll do apprentice groups, as I said. We'll do things here and there. Take those opportunities, but don't wait for those opportunities. Don't wait to get an official, like, christening on your, on your idea to get a group of people together and have dinner and pray together. Go for it. Take the opportunities, but don't wait for the opportunities. Seven, I'll come back to seven. Eight, uh, as we said, like the, the kind of real community you want is spirit-generated. Pray for the Holy Spirit to move in this kind of way. Uh, the next thing I'd say is, is if you want to experience this kind of belonging, there's, there's a rite of passage, and it's faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, like we're acknowledging we're not well. There are things about my life that I can't fix on my own. My, my, I see my world through dark lenses and I need hope. I need regeneration. We do that by asking, asking to be part of God's family through faith in Jesus. If you want to experience that kind of community, it starts by being adopted into the family. You can be adopted into the family today. And then the last thing I would say is this. If you want to experience real Christian community, use your gifts, your gifts and your availability and your resources to serve other people. In the church. And I'm not just talking about volunteering and hospitality or children's ministry, though I hope you do those things. I'm talking about using the skills that God gave you to serve a brother or a sister. Uh, they've got a, a broken down fence, and it's, it's a, a person who didn't have the resources to put it together. And you're great with, with woodworking. You do it. Use your gifts. Use your skills. Use your uh, abilities and to be an encourager, to do that, to serve other people. And the reason that's so powerful is the thing that makes us family as brother and sister in Christ is we are all the ones whom Jesus himself has served. What makes us brother and sister in Christ is we are all beneficiaries of Christ who is at the right hand of the Father, stooping to serve us. When he washed the disciples' feet, he washed our feet by extension. When he died on the cross, he died to rescue us. When he was resurrected and ascended, he did it to give us a new life. We are all beneficiaries of the service of God in Jesus Christ. Which is why it's such a great transition to what we're about to do. We're going to share communion. So I'll invite those who are serving to go ahead and come up. And uh, no matter what we talk about every week, we, we tell the story of the, of the gospel. Whether we're talking about parenting or, or I don't know, pick a topic. Uh, every week we tell the story of the gospel because this is the story that makes us family. The story of how God stooped to win us for his Father's kingdom. How God and Jesus humbled himself, humiliated himself to rescue us and to give us hope and to make us new. Something apart from him that we haven't been able to, to do on our own. And so every week we, we tell this story.
Remember on the night in which Jesus gave himself for us, he took bread. He gave thanks to his father. He broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was broken so that we could be made whole. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to his father, gave it to them and said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus emptied himself so that we could be filled with new life. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians said that whenever we do this thing, we need to do it carefully and reflect. So I'm going to invite you to, to pray with me, and then in a moment we'll share the Lord's Prayer together. Lord Jesus, we, we confess that we have this tendency to run away from each other, even when we're in the same room. Like Adam and Eve, who realized they were naked and were ashamed, at the core, we're, we're always running away from each other, wondering if we're really safe with another person, because we know our own self-condemnation. We know our own emptiness apart from you. And would you forgive us from always running away from you and from each other, and would you give us the grace to trust that you're the one who makes us new? And would you give us the, the grace to trust this family that you've given us and the brothers and sisters in Christ? Forgive us for idolizing the community, the church. Forgive us for the multitudinous ways that we have messed it up and departed from your vision. And send your Holy Spirit to generate this kind of community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for your glory. Lord Jesus, I, I pray for anyone in this room who has not yet crossed the line of faith and said, I want to be a part of God's family. Pray for people in this room who are, who are feeling hopeless, who are feeling friendless, who are feeling like they lack a family. That you'd send your spirit and give them the courage to say, I don't even know what it means, but I trust in Jesus, and I want Jesus to make me new. And we pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.